My name is David Henderson. I'm a civil rights attorney in Dallas, Texas, and you're listening to Race, Violence, and Medicine. Welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Brian H. Williams. Thank you for joining us today. Our guest is Dave Henderson. He is currently a civil rights litigator, but he has some history as a special victims unit prosecutor. So I just want to let you know that in advance, some of the subject matter may be triggering if you have any experience with that. He's also a public speaker, and we're sitting here in his office overlooking the highway here in Dallas, Texas. And I just want to say, Dave, thank you for taking time out to uh, spend, spend some time with us on the show today. Oh, my pleasure, Dr. Williams. All right, let's, I mean, first, let's give us some sense about who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a public speaker, an attorney. Give us some of your background. Absolutely. I've been a lawyer for 17 years now. It's hard to imagine. It's been that long. It flies by. But like most law school students, when I first got out of law school, I went to work for a large law firm that offered a hefty paycheck. I think they offered me more than double what my parents had ever made put together in any given year. Right. So I went that direction initially out of law school. What I didn't know is that in those environments, you basically never go to trial. And you also don't do the type of work that keeps you plugged in with the community. So I worked there for about four years. And then I moved, I was in Houston at the time. I moved to San Antonio And initially, I had my own solo practice, and I largely represented indigent people, and then I ended up doing a significant amount of work in children's court there in San Antonio. And the work that I did in children's court fundamentally changed my outlook as an attorney. Because of the types of cases we were working on and because of what was at stake, the people who saw me in court and saw how I performed all told me that your skills are being wasted here. You need to spend some time at the DA's office where you can try some serious cases. So I joined the DA's office in San Antonio. I was there for about nine and a half years. Five years of that time was in the Special Crimes Division. We had all the crimes against children, all adult sex crimes, then anything bad that anyone who was dating, married, or related to each other, did to each other, came to our unit. So I can name five cases off the top of my head where a man just got mad and killed his wife or his girlfriend. My last two years at the DA's office, I received any DWI that resulted in a death. And it may not sound like it, but that position was a, press, was a pressure cooker and had taken its toll on my predecessors who did that job, one of whom actually committed suicide, to give you an idea of how difficult that assignment was. I met my wife when I was there in San Antonio. She was in medical school and graduate school at the time. So when she finished, she was admitted into the physician scientist program at Southwestern, at UT Southwestern here in Dallas. So we moved here together. I was involved with civil litigation for a couple different civil firms just to get my feet wet, trying cases back on the civil side of things. And then recently I joined Elwanger Law as of counsel. We do primarily civil rights litigation, especially issues that people deal with in the workplace like race discrimination, sexual harassment. And then from time to time I will also take some criminal cases, though I'm selective about what criminal cases I get involved with. 
So that's interesting you were mentioning, I want to talk about your civil rights work, but I want to go back for a moment to your work doing sex crimes, because you talked about how that changed you. Absolutely. And I think people that, you know, that are first responders and doctors that have their hands in this sort of uh, death and, and misery, uh, there's a connection there that, that impacts you. Uh, and can change you. Absolutely. But you're talking about from the prosecutor's side, like way downstream, how this impacts you. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. And I wouldn't say it's downstream if you're doing the job the right way. Okay. Sexual assaults are a unique crime in that it's actually remarkably difficult to get a conviction on many types of sexual assaults. Let me put it this way. The sexual assaults involving children are significantly easier to get convictions on than sexual assaults involving adults. And when you're talking about sexual assault cases, I would say that 98% of my victims were female, whether they were children or adults. And despite the proliferation of the hashtag MeToo movement, the public is very harsh on adult sexual assault victims when those cases go to trial. It's difficult to get convictions. And even when you get a conviction, it's very difficult to get the jury to award the amount of time that they need to, given what that victim has gone through. Can you tell us more about that for the adults? Absolutely. What I had to learn, and this made me a significant better, a much, much better lawyer that was very difficult to do and to understand how it worked, is that you're doing your job as a lawyer when you can actually identify with the person that you're representing in court. That's hard on a sexual assault crime because what I found was nine times out of ten, there were details that the victim had never actually shared with anyone, including the police department, including the sexual assault nurse examiners. And so... Which is understandable, right? (laughs) No, it's completely understandable. It's completely understandable. In fact, it started with the domestic violence cases that I was trying In San Antonio, Texas, if you're trying a domestic violence case, when I say domestic violence case, nine times out of ten what those cases involve is a man who's hitting his wife or his girlfriend. If you're picking a jury in one of those cases and you can make people feel comfortable, you'll have at least one or two people who will raise their hand and say, I don't see what the big deal is if a man wants to hit his wife or his girlfriend. I don't see why that should be a crime. You have to make them feel comfortable enough to say it. And the reason it's important to make them feel comfortable enough to say it is because you have to make sure you get them knocked off the jury, obviously, right? Right. But then when you're trying those cases, what I learned, and it sounds obvious, but it's not. There was a day when I was working on one of those cases, and I was dealing with a victim who actually told me that she had lied about being assaulted. And she had, in this one instance, she had lied. But there's a point when we were talking, and I realized I hadn't been talking to her like she was a person. I've been talking to her like she was a witness in my case, more that she was an object than a human being who was going through something. And when that transition happened, she actually ended up becoming very close. And I was surprised how much she taught me about what her life was like. Right. And what she ultimately explained, because I do want to clear this up since I said that she lied about being assaulted in that instance, she said, he assaulted me so many times, I didn't see what the issue was with calling the police on this one occasion when he actually hadn't hit me. And she was later on teaching her son a Bible lesson, and the Bible lesson was about telling the truth, and she realized, I can't be teaching this to my son if I know that I've lied. But that conversation, I remember because when I was dealing with people who had been raped, I ended up having conversations with them that were similar, although they were more severe. But once you get your, I say victim because 
at the stage when I was dealing with them, they were still very much subjected to the trauma that they had gone through. And they weren't someone that you would necessarily refer to as a survivor yet. They were still going through it. Once they started explaining what it was like for them to go through what they went through, it made me a significantly better prosecutor. And I can give you examples if you want to hear them. Well, I mean, some very good points there. You're trying to get this case done in a person when they're likely in their most their acute trauma phase, trying to give you information. Um, I, I, you're telling me these stories, and I'm just thinking, I, I'm kind of getting sick to my stomach uh, just thinking about the, the reality of this. And I can't imagine that you have to deal with this as part of your job. But also, I work with um, victims intervention specialists that work with women and men who are the victims of intimate partner violence. Um, so to see that all the time, I'm sure that just changes how you view the world and can make you probably gun-shy about how you interact <laughs> with folks. But you, you mentioned there's a difference between the adults you took care of or mm-hmm. worked with and the children. Absolutely. And, uh, I'm not sure if I want to go there, but I think it's important to share this reality with our, with sure. our listeners. Juries aren't as skeptical of the children cases as they are of the adult cases. If you have, I can give you an example, one of the most brutal sexual assaults I dealt with, and this person, forgive me, I'll say this person, and sometimes I'll say victim, because I'm trained to not use their real names. I know them by their real names, sure. but I certainly don't want to repeat their real names in a context like this, unless they were literally sitting here with me and wanted to share that information. So that's why I refer to them with objective terms. But I remember I had one woman I was working with, I was in San Antonio at the time, and she was actually from North Texas. And I literally had to beg her to come back to San Antonio so that we could try her case. We almost had to dismiss it. But she did leave a bar with a stranger, and the jury I knew was going to judge her harshly for doing that. However, it was a situation where imagine it's a work event, I show up with some of my friends, and you show up with some of your friends. And it just so happens that one of my female friends likes one of your male friends, and they connect together, and he's supposed to give her a ride home. So, yes, he was a stranger, but under familiar circumstances, right? He'd been validated by people that were there. Absolutely. He sexually assaulted her three times that night, and he beat her severely in the course of those assaults. It just so happened after the very last assault, he just collapsed on the bed where he'd been assaulting her. And she mustered up what was a considerable amount of nerve to walk out of the apartment. This is actually getting into something you were asking me about earlier, which relates to details that the person typically hasn't shared with anybody else. Mm -hmm. And I'm truncating this story to an extreme degree. She walked out of the apartment. She's barefoot. She runs to a nearby convenience store, which ironically wasn't that far from where I was actually living at the time. The clerk behind the counter wouldn't give her the phone to let her call, to make a phone call. Because she's disheveled, she's got bruises, she's not wearing shoes. The clerk thought she looked crazy. The clerk told her to get out. You talked about first responders. It just so happened that this convenience store was near the medical center in San Antonio. And so by the grace of God, in a convenience store near the medical center, at any given point in time, you have nurses, you have EMTs who are there in the store. I never figured out who these two individuals were, but my impression was one was a first responder, like a firefighter, who's a man who's in the store, and then one was a woman who actually identified herself as being a nurse, but I never actually got to meet her. So the person I'm working with, 
After the clerk won't let her use a telephone, she begged, can I please use the bathroom? The clerk initially said no. The man standing in the store said, ma'am, the bathroom's this way. So she runs back to the bathroom, closes the door. This is the type of detail that she hadn't told anybody else. She hears this banging, 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 banging on the door. She assumed it was the clerk trying to force her to get out of the convenience store. It was actually the woman who was a nurse who was in the convenience store. And she wasn't processing what the nurse was trying to do. But I asked her, why was she banging on the door? And she's like, I don't know why she's banging on the door. I'm like, well, what did she do after you opened the door? And she said she looked really frustrated with me. And I was like, why was she frustrated? And, and she told me, forgive me, it's, I have to struggle not to say her name because I got to know her over the course of this case. She said, I was washing my mouth out. And she said that the woman told her, I knew that's what you were doing. I was trying to stop you from rinsing your mouth out because obviously you want to be able to collect evidence right. like DNA. And then the man who was in the store came over to her and said, ma'am, if you need to make a phone call, I'll let you make a phone call. And he asked, who do you want to call? And it took me a while to get her back to the state where she could remember who she actually wanted to call because the assumption was she's going to call the police. Mm -hmm. She did not want to call the police. She wanted to call her kids to let her kids know mommy's okay because she wasn't back home by the time when she told them she'd be coming back home. The man holding the phone insisted on calling the police because she didn't want to. She begged him not to, but he insisted. He's like, I have to call the police. Please let me call the police. Please stay here until the police arrive. When the police arrived, the police had to beg her to show them where she ran from. And she would never actually get out of the car to walk back to the door that she ran out of. But I talked to the two police officers. They had to plead and plead and plead. And finally she said, this is the complex I ran from. I left the door open. If you go to this location, and she described it, you should be able to see the door and the door will still be open. And that's how they found him. Those details are not the types of details that you typically get in the police report. And they're not the types of details that people think are gonna be important, but they're critically important for actually making the case when you go to trial. The difference between that and a children's case and the children's examples are more than I think your viewers would actually want to hear. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I need to take a break here myself. Uh, the, uh, this is, these are some of my tamest details, by the right, way. You're like, and and this, these are not the, the details that are hard to live with as a prosecutor, by the way. These aren't the things that actually make you angry. Right, right. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here. The story is pulling me in, and I feel for these people that you're describing. I don't know, but I, I feel their, their pain. And I'm sitting there trying to get your story as what you do for and living. And I, I, these, they're, they're, they're not being separated for me in my head right now. I'm like, my gosh, this is the work you do. But we're going to come back to that of course. Uh, on the other side of the break. So you're listening to Race, Violence, and Medicine. We're here with David Henderson. He is currently a civil rights attorney, but he did some time as a sex crime prosecutor. He, he has been sharing with us some, uh, I, I don't know, life altering stories uh, about some of the work that he's done in the past and by his own words these are some of the tamer details so if you are a survivor or know someone who has survived sexual assault just let us know we we are thinking about you and we do not want this to be triggering to the point that um it sends you into a a, a bad place absolutely uh, not but yes we, we we are thinking of you this is not meant to be 
um, voyeuristic. It's meant to be educational and share these stories. Absolutely. So stick with us. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Race, Violence, and Medicine. Our guest today is David Henderson. He is a civil rights litigator in Dallas, Texas. Uh, but he was talking about his former professional life where he did work as a sex crimes prosecutor. Uh, he's been telling us some, uh, I, just, I, I, can't, I don't know the word to describe what you've been uh, telling us, Dave, but we spent some time talking about some of your adult cases and uh, you brought up the, the issue of children's cases. You said that they're easier to get a conviction on because the juries can will believe children um, over adults. I might, I might be paraphrasing this incorrectly, but tell us more about that work and how that affected you. Absolutely. And let me add this in too, because I don't want people to think, as you indicated at the end of the last segment, that we're trying to sensationalize something. The reason that the sexual assault cases were so important to me is because we still have a long way to go in terms of victims getting the rights that they deserve when they go to court. I'll answer your question about children's cases. I'll just put a footnote that what was actually difficult and frustrating with these cases was you'd be surprised how many judges wouldn't hear them. And the reason they wouldn't hear them was because they simply didn't want to have to listen to the details of what the victims would, had gone through. And well, I would always... It too, it's too difficult to hear. Trauma, okay. And my response was, that's your job right. to hear this. And sometimes when you're getting ready to go to trial and you have to start getting the person ready to get on the stand and talk about what happened to them, it is extremely difficult to have to go back to them and say, the judge reset your case. Then have to go back to them again and say, the judge reset your case. Three, four, five times going through this trauma over and over again, living this experience just to get your day in court. So I say there are things that are frustrating. That's one of the things that was frustrating working on these cases. I never had a difficult time interacting with victims. On children's cases, I shouldn't say they're easier to work on than the adult cases. The juries don't doubt the children the same way that they doubt adult women was my experience. But part of that was also because of the severity of what would happen in those cases once you could actually get the child to talk to you. I'll give you an example of a case that I will never forget. I worked on a case that had two victims, and I won't give any more details than I absolutely have to. I'll keep it to a minimum. But this case involved a five-year-old and a six-year-old. Most of my cases involving children, for whatever reason, a sexual assault would happen when the child was around nine or ten. And by the time the case was in the court system and it got to me, they'd be around 12 to 14. But these two kids were younger. They were two sisters. One was five, one was six. Mom took them to the emergency room. And to make a very long story short, the doctor in the emergency room said, this looks like an STD, I am calling the police. Mom originally sided with the defendant, did not protect her two daughters. So the five-year-old shut it out altogether. If you asked her, she said, I got sick because a boy at school pushed me. Obviously, that's not how you get an STD. The six-year-old initially talked, but then she stopped talking altogether. And because she stopped talking, the, the prosecution team that initially had the case actually went to the defendant and offered to reduce the case from child rape to child molestation, and they offered him the minimum, which was two years. He'd been in jail long enough waiting for his trial to where he would have walked out of jail that day, but he didn't do it because he knew that neither one of the kids were talking. So the two prosecutors handling that case actually dismissed the case. They dismissed it, then they re-indicted it with a separate grand jury, 
the reason they did that is because it would get off of their docketed cases and land in somebody else's lap. And it landed in my lap, and I was furious because I thought, you dismissed this case because you didn't want to have to deal with the reality that it's not a case that you can prove. And so I had a victim's advocate who I worked with at the time, wonderful woman named Norma Ferguson. And Norma knew how to twist my arm, and I remember Norma said, let's just bring her in and see if she'll talk to us. And Norma knew what she was doing. And so I remember they brought the six-year-old in, and for whatever reason, we had this teddy bear room where we'd let the kids do whatever they wanted to when they came in. And she and I sat down and we watched the movie Aladdin together. She had lots of questions about the movie Aladdin. I answered those questions. And then after we talked about Aladdin, we talked about her sexual assault. And she told me everything that happened. I actually asked her, this is the type of thing that makes you angry. I asked her, I said, you know, I know that you chose to talk to us and I'm so happy that you did. I'm curious though, why didn't you talk to the last lawyers who tried to sit down and talk to you? And she looked at me and she said, you're a lot nicer than they were. And like I said, those are the types of things that make you really angry working on these cases. That defendant chose to go to trial. Instead of going to a jury for punishment, he chose to go to the judge for punishment. The judge gave him 60 years. And on the charge, he will do a minimum, a minimum of 30 years day for day before he's even eligible for parole. So I think about that case and I think about the fact that for the next 28 years, he's going to wake up thinking, I could be out. If he'd taken the reduced charge for child molestation instead of child rape, he'd be out right now. And the judge said the only reason he didn't sentence him to life, which I thought the verdict should have said life. The judge didn't sentence him to life because he felt like, given the circumstances of the case, he didn't want the defendant to have any basis for appealing the case later on. It's a, I did a show maybe about a month, a month and a half ago, with um, Rachel Thompson, who was a survivor of childhood sexual wow. assault. And she talks about how she had to testify in two trials as mm-hmm. I think she's 11 or 12 years old. She's now in her 50s, she's written a few books, she's an author, she's an advocate for childhood uh, sexual abuse survivors. And hearing you talk about this, uh, it, it kind of puts the whole story together in my mind about what it was been like for her right. to get prepped to go to trial, not once, but twice. Yeah. And now she is here decades later being a, a voice of strength for others that are coming up. Um, That's wonderful to hear that she's doing that. Right. Um, but man, that the work you're doing and, and I'm done, I just, <laughs> I, this, I've learned quite a bit and I have a newfound, uh, I don't know if respect is the word, but just appreciation what it must take psychologically to do this job where you're dealing with people that have um, suffered sexual assault because you're dealing with them on a much longer term, probably sometimes years maybe, I'm guessing. Sometimes. And I went through an angry phase. If my wife was here, she would tell you I went through a very angry phase. I'm a trial lawyer, so I have no problem with fighting with people in court. I never had a difficult time interacting with the people I was representing in court but what the system would put them through at times was just very difficult to deal with. Right. My first case was actually a de- what we call a delayed outcry. That's when someone's been assaulted, but they don't talk about it until years later. And so this was, actually it was a set of twins. They were assaulted when they were five years old, and they didn't talk about it until they were, I believe, 16 or 17 years old. They were at a youth Bible camp, and the youth pastor was talking about the importance of waiting. And one of the two girls thought, I'm ruined. She went to talk to the pastor. The pastor got a sense of what happened. 
the youth pastor, and he told the pastor, the pastor told the parents. So the parents are waiting to have sexual intercourse? Is that she, exactly. Okay. That, that, that's what the youth pastor is talking okay. about, the importance of waiting. Okay. And then she thought, I'm ruined. I'm never going to be able to have a healthy relationship. Right. By the time I met the twins, they were 19, and one of them was suicidal. When I say suicidal, when I would sit with her and talk to her, she would tell me, I'm going to kill myself. This is exactly what I'm going to do. I just have to wait for them to stop watching me in the house so that I can do it. And in that case, to get her ready to testify at trial, I could make her laugh, I could sit and I could chat with her, but she would not talk about the sexual assault itself. And we ended up making a deal. And the deal we made was that she could sit, because she did want the, the defendant to be prosecuted. And it was hard, he was a master sergeant in the Air Force. He wore a suit and tie to the trial. It was a week-long trial every day. The deal we made was that she could sit on the witness stand and draw, and I could ask her yes, no questions, and that was it. And I remember he, the defendant got on the stand, like he screamed at me during the cross-examination, and I remember wondering, how am I gonna convince the jury? The jury convicted him, and I'll never forget, after he was convicted, he'd been wearing a suit and tie to court every day. For the first day of the punishment phase of the trial, he showed up in sweats, and he withdrew his application for probation. Yeah. And his lawyer got up there and his lawyer said, any sentence you give him is going to be a death sentence because of his age. And so I followed behind the lawyer and I said, then if that's the case, there's no reason to make this complicated. Just go back down there and write down life. Right. Write down life and max him out on every other offense that's attached to the, to the complaint. And that's exactly what the jury did. That was the very first sexual assault case I had to try, too. So if, if someone is listening and they are suffering in silence about a sexual assault and you mentioned delayed outcry or what sort of advice would you give to that person from a seeking criminal justice standpoint um, and if you want to mix in their own psychological recovery I might you may have some experience in that but as far as an attorney uh, if they were coming to you or they were thinking about coming to you what sort of advice would you give that person? That's a difficult question the reason it's difficult is because one of the other aspects of that position that was very difficult for me is that when you're doing that job, if you're the type of person that people feel comfortable talking to, and by the grace of God it turned out I was the type of person people felt comfortable talking to, it's not what you're dealing with at work. It's the number of people who come to you in your personal life who tell you they have experienced something like that. And I was overwhelmed by how many friends I had that I had known for years who were dealing with domestic violence in their lives or who had been sexually assaulted and I had no idea. And so the advice I give for people who are underage versus adults is obviously very different. To me, if you're underage, there's no question at all. I struggled with adult women in terms of respecting their right to come forward when they said that I, I don't want to do it. Mm. And the advice that I would give, one, the lawyer that you're dealing with makes all the difference in the world. You have to be able to develop a relationship with that person. And if they are committed to their job, which fortunately most of the people who are working in this area are, you have to be able to trust them and develop a relationship with them to the point where you can provide the details to them that are gonna be necessary for them to really fight for you. In every case involving an abusive personality, there is always a name that they like to call someone. There is something that they like to make them do. There is something that they like to have done to them. In fact, I have used that as a device for forcing some defendants to plea. 
I've looked at defendants before and I've told them, if you make me make her get up there and testify, she is going to explain every single thing you made her do in open court. And I want you to know that. If you're going to make her get up there and talk about some of it, she's going to talk about all of it. And honestly, when I locked eyes with them and told them that, some of them would plead because they knew what it was going to entail. And I've got stories I can tell you along those lines. But I also encourage, I say people, but I do think we're talking primarily to women. I had some male victims, but only a couple. I would encourage those who've been subjected to sexual assault to consider that we do have to make progress as a society where this issue is concerned. And the only way to do that is for people to find the strength and the courage to come forward and to talk about what they've been through and to help those of us who are working in, in this field to bring those who've caused this type of harm to justice. I think this is the worst type of crime that you survive. Obviously, you don't survive manslaughter or murder. But sexual assault is the worst crime that you survive, and it leaves such an impact that we've got to do a better job as a society making sure that those who've been subjected to it receive justice. Well, thank you for that. I, I, I want to take another break. You, you said you're married. I want to know how this impacts your relationships with, with your own family, because now I'm thinking about how this is going to impact me with my <laughs> wife and my young daughter. Absolutely. But we'll take a break and come back and talk about that. So please stick with us here on Race, Violence, and Medicine. We're here with David Henderson, uh, former sex crimes prosecutor, currently a civil rights attorney. We're going to take a short break and be back in one moment. Welcome back to Race, Violence, and Medicine. We are here with David Henderson. He is a civil rights litigator and former sex crimes prosecutor. We've spent the majority, or pretty much all of this interview, talking about his his former work, but I want to touch briefly, really quick, on how this work has impacted you as a family person. Because I'm hearing your stories, and I'm thinking, I don't want to let my wife and daughter out of the house, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And I know that's not realistic, but you know, just you just look at the world, and you may see villains everywhere. So, how have you dealt with that? With tell us about your family, really quick. Your your wife and children. No kids yet. No kids. We're married. Yet. Okay. We're married. It's I've. We've been together for going on 11 years. We've been married for going on four years. We knew we needed to wait until she finished school. Right. My wife was doing the dual degree, the right. MD, PhD. She's insane. I hope our kids get her brains <laughs> one day. But with regard to the assaults, there's good news and bad news. I don't know how you process it. Some people think that it's good news knowing that stranger cases are actually exceptionally rare. They don't happen that often. It's usually somebody you know. It's normally someone you okay, know. Yes. That's not really good news, to be honest with you. But in terms of someone being snatched up off the street, you don't see that that often. It happens, but not that often. It's primarily someone you know. In terms of how it's affected my personal life, that's actually how I got into being a professional speaker. It was through trying to do a better job for the people I was working with mm -hmm. in court. And otherwise, my wife was just fantastic because... As I explained, I did go through an angry phase where I was very angry, but ultimately once I came through it, it made me a better lawyer and it significantly improved my ability to connect with people, which is part of what you have to do as a trial lawyer if you're going to do a good job representing people in court. Like your attorney, our degrees actually say attorney and counselor at law. So your lawyer is also supposed to be your counselor at law. And I used to always tell people I was working with, I still tell them this. Any lawyer who tells you they can guarantee the outcome of a court case is lying to you, but I can guarantee you that you're not going to look back and feel like you could have had a lawyer who was better prepared, who was smarter, or who fought harder for you than I will. 
and fortunately I always had great relationships with the people I represented. I, I didn't know that you were that I said attorney and counselor at law because I'm thinking about my experience that I've had with attorneys uh, I'm, I'm often made jokes. I'm like, yeah, this is like free counseling. But <laughs> <laughs> that's the way it's supposed to be. So I guess I've, I've had some good attorneys that I've had to deal with in, in, in my time period. Good. You mentioned public speaking, and I noticed that you were the Toastmasters World Champion speaker. <laughs> tell us, tell us about that. For a while, I had a hard time. Tell us about Toastmasters for those that don't know what Toastmasters oh, of course, is. And the of course. importance of being the world champion. Toastmasters is essentially a nonprofit that specializes in helping people improve their public speaking skills. So if you want to be a public speaker, you can Google Toastmasters or Toastmasters in my area. You can find a club. Most of them meet weekly or twice a month. And you can go there and you can basically practice your public speaking. After I'd been working as a trial lawyer for a period of time, I realized that in order to do a really good job in the courtroom, you have to be an expert at public speaking. That combined with the fact that on the sexual assault cases for a while, I was having a hard time not crying in court. It only happened during closing arguments. That's the only time I dealt with it. And because it wasn't my persona the rest of the time, some people actually thought I was forcing myself to cry, which wasn't the case. It's just that all the conversations that I would have with the people that I was working with would just rise and boil over when I was giving the closing arguments. So I joined Toastmasters initially to try to completely eliminate that as being part of my experience. What I didn't realize at the time is what was actually going on, which at first I thought I was just crying. I didn't know why, but I realized it was because of the link that I developed with the people that I was representing. Actually, even though I still get emotional sometimes when I'm in court, that never went away. What I learned to do was to better give the jury better perspective on why that emotion was there, and that came through making sure that we were clarifying what the individual that the trial was about. Had and been you through. showed your you showed your humanity. Absolutely, right? and after that, you increased your connection. So yeah. you became the world champion speaker. <laughs> I know. I'm still wondering how I pulled that off. <laughs> but you know, most of those speeches are, are motivational speeches that right. people enter the contest with. And I told my wife, you know what? I think that what I need to do is give speeches that are similar to what I'm dealing with at work. Right. And I'm going to talk about things that are really difficult to deal with. However, I think if I do it the right way, and we've got our speaker's graduation coming up, I'm going to give one of these speeches. Right. So if I do it the right way, I think that ultimately it is motivational. So you have to write two speeches. My first was about the fact that my mom, she probably ripped my lungs out if she knew I was saying this on a podcast. My mom was abandoned by her mom at a very early age. And my grandmom came back when she was dying of cancer. And my mom took care of her on her deathbed. And so that's what my speech was about. When you know for sure that someone's going to die and there's still loose ends that you have to tie up, how do you find hope amid a situation like that? And my last speech, I'd say both these speeches were inspired by tree events. You know, when we were growing up, if you got sickle cell, you were going to die. It's a matter of time. And they didn't know when it was going to happen. Well, there was a child in my family who died when she was eight years old from sickle cell anemia. And the issue that I dealt with in that final speech was how do you maintain hope when you know for sure that someone's going to die and there's nothing that you can do about it? And the speech basically said, sooner or later we all fall down. That's the bad news. The good news is that love can lift you back up. And both speeches, the people who heard them found them to be extremely motivational. What made me different as a winner of that contest was that my speeches made people cry and they beat people laugh and feel right. happy. Right. Normally they just make you laugh and feel happy. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> All right. Well, Dave Henderson, you know what? we got to spend a minute talking about your new role as a civil rights litigator. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. We're going to do a part two episode, but let's, 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 let's go into it right now. You okay. Work, so civil rights litigation here in Dallas, in Dallas, Texas, the transition was motivated by what? And like, what are you doing now specifically? You know, the difficulty with being a lawyer is, and this is why I say that the children's case has fundamentally changed my outlook on the practice of law. You want to do well financially. You want to be able to be supportive of your household, but you also want to do work that's going to actually make a difference for people. And so what we do is we deal primarily with cases that involve race discrimination and sexual harassment. I think that my background in particular makes me very well equipped for dealing with people who face sexual harassment in the workplace. But we help make sure that people receive justice. I also anticipate that in this era we're going to be dealing significantly with members of the LGBTQ community who are facing different types of ongoing harassment, including in the workplace. But it feels very rewarding because for people who have suffered some injustice, I've never met someone for whom it was about the money or it was about the verdict. It's normally about having their voice heard and feeling like they were able to speak up about what they were being forced to endure. I think that's also a big part of what you're seeing in the hashtag MeToo movement. Do you have time for me to give you an example of what I think this feels like? Absolutely. I took Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a while. I even went to Rio and I trained. And I had this one instructor, we called him Bruno. Bruno was six foot four and he was well over 250 pounds. He was, he was just a beast. And he had this move that he did, he called the panic room. <laughs> and he had a way he could pin you. And you couldn't move at all. I'm talking you could not move at all. And the first time he put me in the panic room, I didn't even know that that was a thing. I didn't know what he was doing. I just remember the moment it set in that I couldn't move, I had to fight with every ounce of my soul not to just completely panic. It was the worst feeling I've ever had. And when I got up, he kept patting me on the back. He's like, David Junior, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. And I didn't know why he was patting me on the back. And a friend of mine asked, did he put you in the panic room? I'm like, is that what you call that? He's like, oh, yeah, dude. He put me in that and I freaked out. <laughs> and after he did that, I remember thinking, this is what the people that I work with feel like all the time. Right. You're in the panic room every moment of every day. Even if you're not in a relationship or you're currently being abused, you're still living with that past abuse. You feel like you are locked down all the time. So a big part of what people want is just the freedom to not have to feel that way anymore, to not have to worry about being judged or be abused a second round through the court case. And I think that people deserve that. And as, a as an attorney, if I can help fight for them to get that, then that's worth dedicating my career to. Right. So where can our listeners find you after the show if they want to? Absolutely. You can go to the website elwangerlaw.com. I'm a member of the Elwanger Law Firm. I'm an of counsel attorney, trial attorney with that firm. And I also do take on some criminal cases here and there, depending on how I feel about the case. My individual website is not launched yet, but you can look for me at Oak Cliff Lawyer. And I'm also available to do speaking engagements and consulting for individuals who are trying to figure out how to tell their stories, individuals and organizations. So real quick, spell Elwinger. Elwinger, it's E-L-L-W-A-N-G-E-R.com. That's the easiest way to reach me right now. Okay. And in the next website, I'll be getting started for the speaking business and kind of the criminal practices, Oak Cliff Lawyer. Nice. 
Well, David Henderson, thank you for joining us here on Race, Violence, and Medicine. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, you can follow me at brianwilliamsmd.com. That's Brian with an I. And I know you're listening to the show, but I'd be grateful to you if you would share it with your family and friends if you think that they would find the content interesting. It's available anywhere you get your podcast, but my primary platform is Anchor, F, Anchor FM. So again, Race, Bonds, and Medicine, I'm Dr. Brian H. Williams. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes our show for this episode.